If you have a Bible, please turn to Matthew chapter 19. Thanks, guys, for leading us in song this morning. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, is God's word for us this morning. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Will you pray with me? Lord God, your word is beautiful powerful. There are times that you teach us things that are hard and countercultural. And I pray that you will work with us this morning, that we will hear from you in your word, that we will think wisely, that we will respond in obedience, sometimes in repentance, and in ways that will magnify your name. God, I pray for wisdom and grace this morning on us. You have inspired your holy word, and every part is good. Let us see your good here. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Be seated. I asked our Sunday school class earlier this morning what you would say is the most difficult doctrine or topic in the Bible. What do you think? What's the toughest thing in the Bible? Election? Hell, end times, charismatic gifts. For many people, there's no more important, no more difficult, no more painful, no more impactful topic to consider than the doctrines surrounding marriage and divorce. I mean, think about how practical and real this stuff is. The breaking of marriages impacts entire families, entire churches, And it has certainly changed our society. How we understand marriage and divorce speaks volumes to our family structure. Speaks volumes to our culture. And how we understand marriage and divorce speaks volumes about what we believe about God. 
Folks, this stuff really, really matters. So this morning we are back in our study of the gospel according to Matthew, seeing the life of Jesus unfold before us. This is a text that is the next text in the Word, so I'm not aiming at any of you. But wives, if you need to elbow your husbands, it's fine at any point. As we return here, we see Jesus presented with a question about divorce, and his answer is not what his opponents or his friends expect him to say. So let's look together at the passage. We will find three important points to carry away with us from the passage. I'll start, though, at verses 1 and 2. It says, now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. You know, the vast majority of Matthew takes place in Galilee, which is the northern region, the northern land of Israel. But here, Jesus has begun a walk toward Jerusalem to march with eyes wide open toward the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection. Jesus is journeying south, and he heads for the region of Judea where Jerusalem is, southern Israel. And Jesus is not alone with his disciples as he was over the last couple chapters. Now large crowds are with him again. And just as we saw in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus is compassionate and he heals the sick as he points people toward the kingdom of God. And with all that in the background, Jesus is about to be approached by his religious enemies, the Pharisees. This, this group has been wanting to, to trip Jesus up in his words, to discredit Jesus for a long time. And this morning we're going to see him try again. And their attempt, what they try to do, begins our first point. So point number one this morning. Keep marriage sacred. Point number one. Keep marriage sacred. Uh, verse three. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, I want you to notice two major contextual clues right away in this verse that will inform to us what inform us about what's happening. First, who's the conversation with? It's with the Pharisees. They have it in for Jesus. These are people who think they know Scripture super well, but they have a reputation, Jesus has shown us, that they like to create rules and regulations that go well beyond the Word of God. They're going to twist the law. They make up their own law to suit their own desires. And they have little compassion for other people who struggle to keep the rules that they make up. The second contextual clue is the fact that the question they ask is not a nice, honest, curious question. Look at the verse again and look at what they're trying to do. They're testing Jesus. They're trying to trick or trap Jesus, these men are willing to use a powerfully painful topic like divorce to see if they can get Jesus to say something that will hurt his influence with people. Now, what the question is isn't hard to understand. The Pharisees want to know if God's law permits a man to divorce his wife under any circumstances. Is divorce ever lawful? And the trap here kind of like our contextual clues, is twofold. There's two parts of a trap being set. 
On the one hand, there's a popular religious debate that was going on in Jesus' day. There were two rabbinical schools of thought that had come to very different conclusions as to whether or not God allowed divorces to be legitimate. The primary argument that these guys had was based on an obscure Hebrew word found in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. The followers of the school of Shammai, the rabbi, said that divorce is only permissible in cases of sexual immorality on the part of the wife. The followers of the school of Hillel said that a man could divorce his wife if he found anything in her that displeased him, including but not limited to a bad attitude, letting her hair down in public, or being a bad cook. You guys can decide which school you'd rather be in, Shammai or Hillel. The trap here, besides, that's said in this issue, is if Jesus sides with one school of thought, he's going to alienate the other one. So this is really clever on the part of the Pharisees, right? Let's get Jesus to take a side. He agrees with one group. And then, boom, just like that, there's a whole other chunk that's mad at him. By the way, if you look at these two rabbis, one of them's going to upset most of the women and one of them's going to upset most of the men. That's all I'm telling you. So you can decide which one's which. The other trick here is hinted at as to where Jesus is. He's in the region of Judea across the Jordan. That's where John the Baptist ministered three years ago. John the Baptist had been arrested by King Herod. John the Baptist was executed Y'all remember what John's crime was? John preached in the region of the Jordan in Judea. He preached that it was unlawful for King Herod to be married to Herodias, his brother Philip's ex-wife. So maybe if Jesus speaks strongly about divorce here, maybe he'll condemn Herod like John did, and then maybe he'll meet the same fate. Now, what you and I have to understand here is Jesus is about to respond to a hostile group that is attempting to trap him. That should show you that the passage we're going to read is not the exhaustive teaching from God regarding everything we should know about marriage or divorce and remarriage. This is Jesus dealing with a test. He's going to answer honestly. He's going to answer clearly. What he says is going to be true. But don't think these are the only words from God on the topic of marriage. Now, verses 4 through 6 give us Jesus' first answer to their question. Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus starts. And if ever Jesus started an answer to a question with a slap in the face, it's right here. This is a stinging rebuke. Because when he says, have you not read... He's saying that the Pharisees, these religious gurus, the supposed experts in the law, are ignorant of something obvious to anyone who's read the Bible. Jesus knows he's speaking to smug men who think they can trap him, and they're not going to do it. The Savior then takes the, the questioners back to the beginning of the scriptures. 
Jesus doesn't here engage the Deuteronomy 24 question at all. Instead, Jesus goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. There God created people. There God created marriage. And that text, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, has to be the foundation text for any discussion of marriage. In the beginning, God created. God created human beings in his image. Specifically, God created the human race to be male and female. Marriage has always been intended by God to be the union of a man and a woman Evident from Genesis 1.27. Next, Jesus reminds the Pharisees of the end of Genesis chapter 2 when he points out God said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So not only here is marriage intended by God to be shared between one man and one woman, marriage is the formation of a brand new family. A man leaves his father and mother, moving out from under their protection and under their provision to be united with his wife. The woman leaves her home to become part of a new home with her husband. Two who were separate become one. Two who were part of different families become a brand new family. And, of course, the language in Genesis 2 of the two becoming one flesh, that is also pointing us to the one flesh union of sexual intimacy in marriage. God designed humanity. You guys know God made us, right? If God made us, God understands intimacy better than we do. God understands your body better than you do. God designed it. So that one man would unite himself, not only emotionally and familially, but also physically with his wife. The one flesh union here symbolizing the the true uniting, the clinging of, of this couple one to another to form something brand new, something wonderful. And then Jesus points back to the question asked by the Pharisees by suggesting that these two which have now become one flesh, one unit in every way, one unit under the blessing of God, for the glory of God, by the plan of God, they're joined by God. And we ought not separate them. It cannot be good. It cannot honor God. It is not God's intention that marriages be broken. Now, in all that response, Jesus takes the discussion of marriage and divorce to a much higher place than did the Pharisees. The Pharisees were so interested in finding a way to trap Jesus in his speech or a loophole for ending a marriage that they weren't even remembering that the marriages they were talking about are sacred, dear to the heart of God, intended to display the glory of God. Marriage is a sacred thing, folks. Marriage is a beautiful thing. It is a creation of God. And if we're going to understand this passage correctly, we must first understand that God wants us to keep marriage sacred. Now, Jesus has highlighted some things for us to know as we consider marriage. What have we seen? Marriage is for one man and one woman. Any alternative to that is outside the will of God. Marriage is to unite a couple in companionship. 
Marriage is to unite a couple as a new family. Marriage is to form something brand new as two become one. Marriage is the only proper arena for human sexual intimacy. Sex outside of the bounds of biblical marriage is sin against God. The sanctity of marriage demands that we not engage in sexual activity before we're married, nor should any married person engage in sex with anyone other than his or her spouse. Marriage is to be the union of one man and one woman exclusively. And for us to see marriage as sacred, we must see that marriage belongs to God. Do you hear that? Your marriage, if you're married, belongs to God, not you. Jesus referred to marriage as what God has joined together. Marriage is not something we can redefine to fit our culture. Marriage is not something we can change to suit our preference in the moment. Marriage is God's idea, God's property, and we must submit to that. And Jesus shows us here that to keep marriage sacred... We don't look for ways out of it. The plan of God, the heart of God, is that when you marry a person, you are committed to that person until one of you dies. And to be clear, wives, it is not okay to try to knock off your husband. (laughs) Marriage is the God-ordained, lifelong union of one man and one woman. The Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus. They thought they could twist laws about marriage to benefit them. And many of them wanted easy access to end marriage whenever it was convenient. But the Savior shows us that marriage is sacred. And we better know that to do things to destroy marriage is to do things to attack the Lord himself. Because marriage has been God's property, because marriage has been God's idea from the beginning. To battle marriage is to battle God. Now, does this mean that divorce doesn't actually exist? Does it mean that all Christians should oppose all divorce in all circumstances? No, I don't think so. It doesn't mean that. But we have to establish First, as Jesus does first, up front, you mess with marriage, it's a big deal. There is no way, no way to bring a marriage to an end with, at, without one or both of the spouses participating in a grievous sin. Jay Adams actually says it this way. He says, all divorce involves sin though not all divorce is sinful. But there's no way that a marriage is broken by divorce without at least one of the parties participating in a grievous sin. In a discussion of marriage, you start with the assumption that marriage is to last until one spouse is dead, period. And like I said, wives... You don't get to speed that process. But the Old Testament mentions divorce, right? Why? We're going to see that in the second point. We said keep marriage sacred, right? You with me so far? Point number two, keep divorce rare. Keep divorce rare. Verse seven, 
They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Boy, the Pharisees think they've just caught Jesus in a mistake. They think Jesus has somehow forgotten the talk of a certificate of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. So in a sense, they as aggressive enemies are having that, that glorious gotcha moment. Ha <laughs> ha, you didn't say everything, Jesus. We know something you don't know. Just like having a conversation with one of your children, if you've got any little ones. Now, it's true, folks. Divorce certificates are mentioned in a few places in the Old Testament, not just Deuteronomy 24. It is clear that that was part of the culture of the nation of Israel for centuries before Jesus's ministry. Here's the question. If God didn't want divorce, why would God have allowed Moses to in any way regulate it? Well, verses 8 and 9. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus points out that the existence of divorce and divorce regulations has to be seen first as a response to the hardness and sinfulness of human hearts. This thing ought not exist. But because of the fall of man, because of the sinful selfishness and cruelty of mankind, divorce came into being. Now again, think back to what Jesus first said. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's uniting two people into one new unit and this for life. There's no way to break that unit without at least one of the people sinning in a major way. Well, what about that passage in Deuteronomy? What about the command of a divorce certificate? I want you to listen to the passage. Don't even turn there. I want you just to listen to the passage. And here's what I want you to think about. Does this passage sound like the issue that that's the main thing is the regulation of the certificate? Because they're acting like this is all about Moses commanding a certificate. And if you got a certificate, it's all fine. Listen to the passage and you tell me if you think that sounds like the certificate is the central focus. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes a, her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." That's the passage that they think they just got Jesus on. What's the point of that passage? It's a passage set up to prevent men from cruelly abusing a woman. If one man divorces his wife and another man marries her, the first husband may not take her back. It prevents a man from using easy divorce to pass his wife along whenever he feels like it. It also, to get even uglier, prevents an evil man from passing his wife to a friend who can then divorce her and give her back. 
And if you say to me, people would never do that, you haven't lived in the real world. Moses was showing us that divorce is not a legal allowance for that kind of evil. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is about. But nowhere in what I read to you is the concept of divorce seen as being, oh, no big deal. Moses doesn't say, hey, so long as there's a certificate, divorce for any reason is just fine and dandy. Just get the paperwork filled out. No, Moses, under the inspiration of God, is actually trying to act to limit divorce and protect women from abuse. But the concept of no-fault, easy, flippant divorce like our society has, that was never part of the design of marriage. Then Jesus gives his judgment regarding the question of divorce in general. Savior says, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Which puts Jesus very close to the school of Shammai regarding the issue of divorce and remarriage. Jesus makes it clear, under most circumstances, a divorce will be sin and will lead to adultery. Now remember, the whole point of the legal loophole being sought by the Pharisees, besides looking for a way to trap Jesus, was to have the freedom on a whim to end their marriages. That's what they were looking for. Evil men love the idea of being able just to sign a piece of paper, ditch their wives, and pick up a new woman who pleases them more. So if they can make it look like God approves of that, so long as the paperwork is properly filed, they feel like they can proceed without technically being in sin. Isn't that lovely? But Jesus says that that is still sin. Big sin. You're not free from the sin of adultery just because you got the proper legal paperwork done. God unites a man and his wife for life. And that's not something that you can righteously throw away just by writing a certificate and walking away. And there are stories, if you think, again, if you think that sounds crazy, Understand, there are cultures that all it requires to have a divorce is for a man to look at a woman and say three times, I divorce you. And then he can go on his merry way. There are stories of countries uh, in Asia that the husband would divorce his wife via text message, take a trip to Thailand to take part in the prostitution industry there, come home and take her back. That way he wasn't guilty of adultery while he was gone. That's the kind of stuff we're dealing with here. You think the certificate would be enough to make that okay? So we still face the question, though. Is divorce always forbidden? Must a spouse left by his or her spouse for another person remain in the marriage? No, that's not what Jesus is telling us. As you can see by the exception that's present in the passage, the Savior understands there may be a circumstance where a spouse can divorce without being guilty of adultery. That's why the exception, except for sexual immorality, is present in verse 9. Jesus is here telling the Pharisees and his listeners what people of that day all around him actually knew to be true. If a wife were to commit adultery against her husband, the husband who divorces her is not guilty of the covenant-breaking sin of adultery. The wife has already committed that sin. 
she bears the guilt of breaking the marriage. And in case you're wondering, the same is true if the husband is the one who commits adultery. His wife can divorce him without being guilty of the sin of adultery because he has already committed this covenant-breaking sin. What about remarriage for the divorced, you ask? The language of the exception in verse 9 has to apply both to divorce and to marrying another. There's no, no way to do Greek gymnastics to make it only apply to divorce but not remarriage. If a person is the innocent victim in a divorce, the exception in verse 9 clearly allows them to be free to marry again. But I'll tell you this. Any person who's been through that kind of pain and that kind of difficult experience needs to counsel with the church elders and needs to counsel with other solid believers in order to work through their pain and to work through their scars before re-entering the marriage world. Guys, that, that stuff's too big to enter into lightly and without counsel. So we don't do this flippantly. Now, here's where I'm going to give you the disclaimer. I have to say to you guys, and you guys know it, there are some believers out there that would disagree with what I've just said to you. Some people would argue that the text doesn't allow for the remarriage of a divorced believer unless they're remarrying their former spouse, if that spouse hasn't already married somebody else. And the arguments around all of that are complex. And listen to me, those who hold the view uh, opposite of what I just said, those who hold the view opposing remarriage under any circumstances while the spouse is alive, they do that out of desire to honor God. But I don't agree with their interpretation of those texts at all. And I don't believe that their conclusions are accurate. And if you wanted to talk with me about that and the obscure arguments that come out in that, we need to do that at another time because I really don't want the Sunday morning pulpit to be the place for the presentation of a position paper on that topic. We can do it at Sunday school if you want to. We can do it over coffee if you want to. We can do a Bible study on it, but not here, not now. But I'm giving you a fair heads up that I want to be, be fair about this. There are those who would disagree with what I said, and they do it out of a love for God, not, of a, not a, out of meanness. Fair enough? All right. Let's keep everything in mind and summarize where we've been so far. Jesus is being attacked by the Pharisees. And Jesus' answers, there's no way that this is everything God wants to say about marriage and divorce. Paul's going to write about this. Pretty big way in 1 Corinthians 7, in Ephesians 5, in Colossians 3. Peter writes about marriage in 1 Peter 3. But Jesus gives us some really important truths that we've got to take with us. What has he told us? Marriage is sacred. It's God's idea. It's God's property. Your marriage is God's property. The definition of marriage is God's property. The institution and concept of marriage is God's property, not ours. No person should look to separate what God has joined. From the beginning, God designed marriage to last a lifetime. Second, if a person willfully breaks a marriage and unites with another person, even if they have the proper paperwork filled out, they're guilty of the marriage-breaking sin of adultery. And the exception Jesus offers us here is, well, if the other spouse has already committed adultery, divorcing does not then lead to you having committed adultery. 
And Paul's going to teach us in 1 Corinthians 7 that a believer who has been abandoned by a non-believing spouse is also free to move on from that marriage. But what we have to grasp is that the Bible makes a far smaller, far tighter restriction on divorce than does our culture. We're supposed to see marriage as sacred, and that forces us to keep divorce rare. Now, typically, at this point in the discussion, people want to pose a thousand what-if questions. Don't you? Be honest with me. How many of you are sitting there with a what-if in your head right now? But what about... And you've got a topic, right? What if there's abuse? What if he's a drunk? What if she's financially irresponsible? What if she's a bad cook? What if, what if, what if? We got a bunch of them. You have a few what ifs in your head? Two of you do. Good, then we really don't have to worry about this, do we? I believe that the Bible has given to us a vehicle that deals with every last one of your what-if questions. You know what it is? It's the church and the process of church discipline. If you in your marriage are facing circumstances that make you consider a divorce, come talk to an elder in the church. What we'll do is we will work with you to counsel through it. If your spouse is in sin, we will, call, we will work with you to call your spouse to repentance and to bring you to reconciliation, which will honor God. Now, if you're in physical danger, we'll do everything we can to help you find a safe place until the conflict is put right. And the process in Matthew 18 of church discipline is exactly what God has given us to give us what we need to press through the what-ifs toward honoring God by doing everything we can to preserve marriages. Now again, let me be clear. If your safety or the safety of your children is at stake here, I'm not commanding you to keep yourself or others inside a house in a dangerous situation. Get to a safe place. Get out of the house. Call the cops if the behavior is criminal. You hear me? If you're in danger, call the police. Don't call me. I can't help you nearly as well as they can. I'm not saying ever submit to abuse. But once you've done that, reach out to the church leaders. It could be that what you're seeing is an indicator that your spouse is a non-believer who has no intention of ever fulfilling the marriage covenant. We'll work with you to find safety. We'll work with you to handle the situation biblically. Don't think in my situation there's no solution. Don't think in my situation there's no help. That's what the church is here for. That's what church discipline is about. That's why we have elders and deacons who can counsel you through the situation. But at the same time, do not immediately take it on yourself to file for divorce. The elders of the church are God's provision for you. And if you're a church member, we're here to help you. We're here to help you honor God even in times of difficulty. 
There are exceptions that the Bible offers to allow for divorce, adultery, and abandonment. If you are considering a divorce as a believer, as your pastor, I'm telling you, instructing you formally with authority, come talk to an elder here in the church before you do it. We'll do everything we can to help you and to see if your situation biblically fits these exceptions. We'll treat you with grace. We're not going to try to mind control you or anything weird like that. But we will treat you with grace and prayerfully work with you to lead you to honor Christ and fulfill all of our biblical obligations together while keeping you safe. But it will be the responsibility of the church elders to hold our church members accountable to Scripture. So if a member decides to divorce for unbiblical reasons, a woman decides that she doesn't feel fulfilled in her marriage and so she's going to get out. A man decides, I don't like the way she looks at me and she chews with her mouth open. I've had it. I'm out of here. And maybe it's ugly, by the way. We will, if you participate in a divorce that is not allowed by Scripture, we must call for repentance on your part, as Christ has specified in Matthew 18. We will serve the church by calling us to see marriage as sacred, and we will serve the church by striving to keep divorce rare. So way before you get down that road, way before you reach the end of your tether, you've got to come talk to us. This is not because we're trying to be the boss, but because we want to prevent you from walking down a road in which you go further than the Lord's word allows. Is that fair? Well, as you might imagine, that strict view on divorce that Jesus has, that catches some people by surprise. The funny thing is, it's his disciples who are most surprised and they want to ask him about the teaching privately. And Jesus uses this twist to talk to them for a moment about singleness. Point number three, honor God in singleness. Honor God in singleness. Matthew 19, 10 through 12. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who have been so since birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. But the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So the disciples have heard Jesus talk, right? And they, they have that sort of heavy feeling that all you all are sitting here with right now. Oh, this is serious. And the disciples see, that, I mean, marriage is dangerous. Do you all get that? By the, again, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping and putting myself in a bad spot here. But do you get that marriage is dangerous? What other relationship can you enter into that leaves you more vulnerable than this? And they say, if it's hard to get out of a marriage without dishonoring God... It's probably better not to get married at all. Now, the disciples there are missing all of the beauties and the God-glorifying aspects of marriage in that question. 
But you know what? The disciples are right. Because marriage puts us in an incredibly vulnerable position with each other. I could look at any one of our men in this room, any husband, and I could ask any husband, who in the world could hurt you the most? And you all know the answer, don't you? The wife has the ability to do the most damage to the husband. The husband has the potential of doing the most harm to the wife. Marriage is scary. Marriage is also beautiful because who in the world could bless a husband or a wife more? Jesus says not all people are shaped not to be married. Some people live well without marriage. Jesus points out that there are some people that have physical issues that make them unable to be married or to experience the sexual union in marriage. He says some people have chosen You know, they've made themselves eunuchs. He doesn't mean physically there, but spiritually. They've chosen not to marry so they can be free to serve the Lord in a unique way. That's good. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says the same thing. It's good for some people not to marry so that they can have more freedom to work for the kingdom of God. But Jesus says the ability to remain single and to serve the Lord is a special, even rare gifting from God. The disciples, they responded to the strong teaching about divorce, right? They're like, man, maybe singleness is better. Jesus doesn't speak against marriage here. But just like Paul, 1 Corinthians 7, Jesus says, look, if you're single, you, you are freer than when you're married. If you're single, you can serve the Lord in a unique way. When you're single, you also face problems that married people don't have. So what do we take from this? Are you single? Well, if you are, serve the Lord. I mean, if you're single, you've got a special freedom from God given to you to give more of your time, more of your money, more of yourself to the service of the Lord. Single people can share the gospel. They can go on mission trips. They can support others in ways that married people may not be as free to do. A man with a wife and kids is less free to take off on a dangerous mission trip than it's a single man of the same age. If someone opened the door for me right now to do a street preaching mission trip to the center of Iran, my wife would talk to me. (laughs) I don't know whether she'd say, sure, have at it or stay home. I don't know which, but she'd talk to me. The bottom line is, if I just said, I'm going and didn't say anything to her, I'd be a jerk, right? But a single man... You get that wide open door to go preach the gospel in a place that might cost you your life? If you're single, man, you know what? You can go. And there's not a family, a wife and kids back home you've got to worry about. So, here's the deal. If you're single, use your singleness to serve the Lord. Don't think that singleness is a curse. Don't think that marriage, though, is wrong either. Serve the Lord in the unique opportunity he has afforded you. Now, how do we tie all this together? See marriage as sacred. Keep divorce rare. Honor God in singleness. That's it. Jesus never once devalues marriage. Jesus shows us that God is at the heart of a beautiful union that creates a new family as a man and woman unite for his glory. This is good. And that kind of beautiful union should not be easily torn apart. But if God hasn't given that blessing to you yet, 
You've got a ton of opportunity to serve the Lord. Now, if you're married, this message ought to cause you to worship the Lord. It ought to cause you to pray for your marriage. It ought to call you to take action, to do everything you can to preserve and protect your marriage because you don't want to be in an impossible situation. This should remind us that our marriages do not belong to us. Our marriages belong to the Lord our God. So treasure them, protect them, show them as sacred. And as we wrap up, we've got to realize this. Many of us here have failed or been failed. True? Many of us have failed at singleness. Anybody here ever fail at singleness? Anybody here ever fail at marriage? You know what? Truth be told, we're a group of people who fail at all kind of stuff. And have failed at major and minor points all through life. We're sinners. God has grace. Confess your sin to the Lord. Commit yourself to turn away from your sin and obey the commands of God. Cry out to Jesus for mercy. Cry out to Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus died and rose from the grave to pay for your sin. So come to him for mercy and find renewal and begin a life honoring him from this day forward. If you need help to know where to start, come talk to me or another elder or a deacon right after the service is over. We'll do everything we can to help you to live to honor Christ, no matter who you are and no matter who you've ever been. Let's pray together. Lord God, we... If ever there was a kind of message where we need you to protect the message from faulty thinking, it's now. Give us your heart and your view of marriage and divorce. Don't let us mistake what's been said or what's in your word. But let us respond to you in submission and surrender and obedience. For those in this room who have been hurt deeply in marriage, I pray you have grace and mercy on them. Give them healing. For those who have done wrong, give them the ability to repent which at least begins with them confessing to you, God, I messed this up. I broke your word. I committed adultery. I I failed you. Let them do that, Lord. If there are obligations that can be biblically met, help them to turn and meet those biblical obligations. For those who have been wronged, I pray that you will help them to see the grace and the mercy that you've given them in places so that they can have mercy on others. For those who are single, for those who are single who hear this later, give them the ability to honor you in their stage of life. God, help us honor you. Help us keep divorce rare. Help us see marriage as sacred. Help us remember that we honor Christ in every aspect of life, and especially as we deal with something that is so sacred to you. This is your property. Our marriages do not belong to us, and we are not free to end them at our whim. Give our church strength here and help us to stand against the cultural tide of sexual immorality and easy divorce. But also help us to be biblical enough to know that you have made provision 
to protect your children in this process and that we don't have to stand for continuing abuse or adultery or abandonment or how these things go, but you've indeed given a way that we as a church can navigate these waters together. As we're trusting you, Lord, you provide solutions. God, be gracious. God, again, I know I'm so, so incapable of handling this with enough clarity. Let your word ring in our ears. Remove me from it. Let your voice ring. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.